Good morning, everyone. My name is Duke. Those who I may not know, and it's my pleasure as one of the other pastors of uh, this community uh, to greet you again. I just uh, pulled in from Grace Mosaic since during the Advent season we are rotating uh, preachers and preaching across all three of our sister congregations. So a joy to be able to do that with Mosaic and downtown tonight and with you, uh, my own family, church family here today. I'd like to first start off uh, by reading the scripture reading for today. Uh, a, a wonderful reading that we just had and wonderful work by Esther as well. But our passage for today that I'll be preached from actually comes from Revelation chapter 12. And so I will read that at this time. If you have a Bible or Bible uh, software with you, you may follow along. But you may also, as always, simply listen carefully. And that is itself a way that God's word seeps into our hearts and our lives. Listen to the word of God, Revelation 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called devil, the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, 
so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is, too, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this word. And we pray that you would bless us now and help us to hear what we need to hear and see what we need to see. Change us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Come now, in Christ's name, amen. I don't know if you're a a fan of any of the Marvel movies, uh, but recently my wife Paula and I watched The Black Widow, starring Scarlett Johansson. And towards the end of the movie, as you may know, there's a twist in the plot involving Natasha and her mom, Melina. See, what you thought was the decisive moment of betrayal actually turns out to be a moment of heroism and loyalty. And the way you find this out in this movie is through a powerful storytelling device that movie directors will sometimes use. The end of Ocean's Eleven also comes to mind. We're at a climactic moment. The movie rewinds the story and you rewatch the same scene, but this time you're given more information, more of the dialogue, more of the context, a different camera angle, stuff you didn't see the first time that you saw that scene, and the audience now totally blown away at this point finds out what actually happened behind the scenes. And the whole time as the viewer, you're saying to yourself, oh, that's what really happened. That is the same storytelling strategy that's found in the ancient blockbuster hit, the book of Revelation. See, a lot of people think the sole purpose of Revelation is prediction, what lies ahead. But the book also provides spiritual perception, what lies behind. The point is not just to foretell, but rather to offer intel, to rewind back through the story of redemption and to give a behind-the-scenes look, a behind-the-scenes take on what really happened and why from the perspective of heaven. And so what we find in today's passage, Revelation 12, is an invitation to rewind back to one of the best-known and best-loved stories in all the Bible, the Christmas story, and to take another look from heaven's perspective. What was actually going on behind the shepherds keeping watch of their flock by night? Behind the singing angels, the magi, the young mother Mary, and the baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger? What was behind the scenes of the nativity scene? Well, Revelation 12 tells us it's war, a spiritual war. 
We see this across three dramatic, almost sci-fi-like scenes that correspond with the chapter's three paragraphs. In the opening scene, the opening paragraph, we encounter a great sign, a symbolic heavenly vision, and we're introduced to three main characters. First, there was a woman. By the way that she's described, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head, a crown of all, of all things, 12 stars. Well, she's clearly not any ordinary woman. She's larger than life. In fact, she's royal, wearing crowns. She's a queen of sorts, and we're told she's pregnant and crying out in birth pains. So, who is this woman? Of course, she appears to be Mary the mother of Jesus. Uh, but if you look at it at other times, she also looks a bit like Eve, especially when you hear the echoes of Genesis 3.15 in this passage, the serpent, the woman, the promised deliverer. At other times, still, the woman appears to refer collectively to the church. After all, the Old Testament prophets often use the metaphor of a bride or a childbearing woman to describe God's people. So this woman, she's, she's Mary, she's Eve, she's the church. And maybe it shouldn't surprise us that this woman might have multiple meanings in this dreamlike vision. I mean, I don't know about you, but in my dreams, sometimes characters in them will sort of shapeshift. You know, one moment I'm talking to my daughter and the next moment I'm talking to my fifth grade English teacher or something weird like that. Right? I mean, this is the way dreams work. Should we be surprised that this dreamlike vision should also have richness and layers of meaning? And then, of course, there's the woman's baby. We're told in verse 5, she gave birth to a male child. He, of course, is no ordinary child. He's a conquering king. One who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That there is a quote of Psalm 2. A psalm about the Messiah who subdues his enemies and reigns over the whole world. Well, what child is this? It's King Jesus. And last but not least, there was a dragon. You notice that, of course. You can't miss it. A great red dragon. He's massive. Seven heads and destructive. He's got ten horns sticking out ready to fight. And he's furious with rage, and he's wearing seven royal diadems. That's like crowns or royal headbands, because he's a prince of darkness, an oppressive tyrant. This dragon is Satan, of course. Verse 9 tells us so. That ancient serpent, referring to Genesis 3, who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And here he is, seeking to devour the woman's child, seeking to do whatever he can to destroy the promised king, which is what we exactly we find in the book of Matthew, its account of the birth of Jesus in the second chapter where Satan puts it even in Herod's heart to satanically slaughter every boy in Bethlehem two years and younger. So devious and committed is he to ending the reign of the king. This then brings us to the second scene in verse 7 through 12, which envisions a war in heaven. We're told that the archangel Michael and his angels fight against the dragon and his angels, and they were defeated. 
And as a result, they were expelled from heaven and thrown down to earth, where the devil and the demons now roam with great wrath. Now, this is a difficult image to interpret, and there have been over the years several ways that it's been interpreted, this wild picture. Among the better readings, one is that this portrays the original fall of Satan and his demons, the original expulsion of them, these fallen angels, from heaven long ago. But another interpretation is that this is actually a snapshot of what happened in heaven during Christ's death and resurrection here on earth. So Colossians 2.15 tells us God disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Which perhaps is why in verse 10 there's a loud voice that announces this scene as being a time when the salvation of Christ has now come. Different interpretations, but listen, either way you read it, the main point is the same. Satan, in a real way, has already been defeated. And if the second scene describes a war in heaven, the third and final scene in verses 13 to 17 depicts a war on earth. The dragon is thrown down, his tyranny is broken, but his work of terror and destruction continues here on earth. He's failed to destroy the child king, so now he moves on to target the woman. And here she appears to stand for the church, God's people. So the serpent pursues her, spews water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood, we're told in verse 15, to drown her, to destroy her, to bring an end to her. And yet every step of the way, and here's the important point, God protects and helps her against the enemy. Even so, furious and frustrated, the dragon and his armies go off to prowl the earth, and we're told in verse 17, to make war on the rest of her offspring. That's the faithful offspring of Eve, the brothers and sisters of Christ. War is waged on earth, even as it was in heaven. Okay, a lightning fast overview of the imagery and the meaning of this wild vision that we find in this chapter. What does this all mean for us, though, in Advent? What are some lessons that we can draw from this? Let me give you four. Number one, you and I are caught up in a cosmic conflict. We are surrounded by a spiritual war of cosmic proportions. But far too many of us, even among professing Christians, move about our day with what you might call secular sensibilities. That's totally unaware that there is a spiritual realm beyond what our physical eyes can see. Recently, one morning, my kids were getting ready for school, putting on their shoes and their jackets. My five-year-old daughter gasped and, and said, Daddy, what is that? And it took me a moment to realize what she was pointing at, but then eventually I saw it too. 
See, a beam of the morning light had come cutting through the window and into the room at just the right angle to reveal a bunch of little sparkly things floating in the air. And so I explained to her that there's always dust in the air. We just can't usually see it. And then I think I also added unhelpfully without any explanation, yeah, and we just breathe it in all the time. Isn't that weird? <laughs> Revelation is that beam of morning light. And it's helping us to see spiritual realities that we don't normally see, though they're always right there in the very air we breathe. As theologian Richard Lovelace has put it, we've replaced medieval superstition with enlightenment modern substition, under-believing in the spiritual and the sublime. But friends, the devil is real. He's not the comical dude in the red suit holding the pitchfork. He's a personal embodiment of pure evil. And he doesn't live in hell. We're told even in the Bible, he's prowling around on earth. In the words of pastor and author John Mark Comer, the devil is not a fictional villain from a Harry Potter novel. He's a real and cunning source of evil and the most powerful and influential creature in the world. And he, along with his invisible occupying army of fallen angels called demons, are waging a war of darkness and rebellion and destruction against the kingdom of Christ and against the people of Christ. And you might be wondering, you might ask, well, how does he do this? What are his weapons of warfare? Well, we're told a few. Uh, first, there's the weapon of accusation. The word devil means one who slanders, who falsely accuses. Uh, see, the devil is constantly whispering in our hearts false charges against God. Uh, can you believe that God would do that? Does that God really love you? Do you really think he cares about you after all that you've been through? Is he really good? Do you hear the whispers? Guess whose voice it is. And it's slander against God, telling exaggerated things, even lies against him. And as the accuser, he also brings charges against us to God, standing in the courtroom of heaven, as it were, stating, declaring, yelling perhaps, how can you forgive this ungrateful sinner after all that they've done again and again and again? Oh, how dare you, God? Uh, let your glory be trampled on again. You cannot possibly love her. You cannot possibly still want to call him your son. Accusation. Here's another weapon of warfare. 
deception. Verse 9 calls him the deceiver of the whole world. In John 8, Jesus says of Satan, there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. It's like almost the only things that come out of his mouth, lies. For he is a liar and a father of lies. And so he goes about making sin look attractive, lying to your heart, or making righteousness look boring or ugly, lying to your heart. Obviously, this is closely related to his work of temptation, the way he dazzles things before us, alluring us away from the love of Christ, all the ways in which he obscures the beauty of Christ, twisting the truth of Christ, the way he offers us counterfeit comforts, things that in times of pain and hardship might soothe us, but eventually pierce our hearts with destruction. These are the lies of Satan. And another weapon, destruction. You know, the word Satan itself means enemy or adversary. His whole existence is predicated on being devoted to opposing the reign of God. He does everything that he can to dim the gospel and to block the spread of the gospel. He brings in his warfare everything he can against the advance of the kingdom of God. Against the kingdom of light, he brings into this world darkness. Against the kingdom of life, he brings into this world death. Against this kingdom of wholeness, he brings into this world decay and disease. And against this kingdom of freedom, he brings into this world oppression and enslavement. This is the destructive work of the devil, of Satan, the adversary of God. And it's in this that we see how he is not simply running around tempting us individually, but he works out his evils even through social structures across our society, through institutions and the like. Again, as Professor Loveless has written, the devil is the ultimate oppressor from whose bitter tyranny we all long to be freed. The unjust systems which starve people or enslave their souls are created by human tyrants, but their ultimate designer is Satan. In other words, lying behind even human-created, socially-constructed institutions of oppression and injustice of all kinds lies one whose name is the adversary, the architect of so many manifestations of evil and sin and tears in our world. Friends, we live in temporarily occupied territory, and we are surrounded by a spiritual war of cosmic proportions. But some of us live as if you're in a water gun fight or in a paintball game, oblivious to the mortal combat all around us. Friends, what do you see? Not with physical eyes, but spiritual eyes. Do you see the things all around us 
indeed the war. This brings us to the second lesson. This one's much more brief. Even in the midst of the war, however, shall we cower? Shall we retreat? Shall we give up? No, no. Lesson two, God will protect you and me in the midst of the fight. The woman is threatened by this menacing, bloodthirsty dragon. But in verse 6, she flees into the wilderness like the Israelites who were escaping Pharaoh's armies in Exodus. And there she finds a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished, taken care of, fed. In verse 14, we're told that she was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly out of the serpent's reach. And this is unmistakably language that echoes God's words in Exodus 19. When right after the Exodus, God says to his people in the wilderness, I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. God protects you in the fight. In fact, it should be of great comfort and assurance to us to know that according to this passage, the devil has been waging this war from the very beginning of time. From the fall of Adam and Eve throughout human history, through the Old Testament, at every spot, trying to trip up God's people, trying to thwart God's purposes and plans, even trying to kill off the physical birth of the one Jesus who would be the promised deliverer, promised since the beginning of time. And yet at every step of the way, he proves to fail. Because God is protecting his people, nourishing them even under harsh circumstances in the wilderness with intimacy and care. As, John, as Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 28 about his sheep, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And the Apostle Paul offers these words of indomitable assurance. If God is for us, who can be against us? For I am convinced that neither angels nor demons nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. Friends, you may not be unscathed, but in this fight, you will be forever secure. But we have more than protection. We have authority in this spiritual conflict. Lesson number three, you have authority over the enemy. One of the great joys of the last fall for me has been uh, watching and participating in or watching my son uh, and his rec soccer league team. And I slipped up a second ago and said participating in because that's what it felt like, that much emotional investment and at times even feel like I was the one on the field trying to win or mourning those losses. And there were one or two games where I found myself uh, becoming frustrated with the referee, as tends to happen, as you know, uh, where he was donned in his uniform, striped in black and white, 
And yet when a certain foul would take place on the field, uh, instead of blowing the whistle, he would sort of gesture and, and, and just talk to the, the players, on, hey, hey, that, that, that's a foul. And instead of directing them with a toot of the whistle, would sort of just point, and it would frustrate me. I tried, again, not to be one of those dads, of course. And yet to watch him to attempt to stop what was happening on the field, or to direct the players, or to try to get their attention, and not use the whistle, which conveyed the authority that the referee had on the field, frustrated me to no end. Dear friends, you have in Christ authority over the spiritual forces of darkness, even the devil himself. And you're on the playing field, and in fact, you're wearing the uniform. You are clothed in Christ. You bear his name, and you have the whistle. You can get the enemy's attention. You can direct him. You can even stop him. You're wearing the uniform. You have the whistle, the authority. Dear Christian, are you using it? See, here's good news. Referenced it earlier. At the cross of Christ and his resurrection, verse 8, Satan was defeated. The great dragon was thrown down and his angels were thrown down with him. That's why Colossians 2.15 tells us that God disarmed the powers of evil at the cross. That's why 1 John 3.8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared, advented, was to destroy the works of the devil. Puritan Thomas Watson once wrote this, besides the two thieves crucified with Christ, there were two other invisible thieves crucified with him, sin and the devil. See, the devil's not yet dead, but the death blow has already been decisively dealt. He's a wounded animal now, a dying dragon, as it were, still dangerous. But he has been defeated. And that means that you have authority over him and all the forces of darkness. Again, Professor Lovelace has written that the gospel gives us so much, tells us in our justification in Christ, you are accepted. And the gospel also tells you in your sanctification, you are free from the bondage of sin. And it tells you even more through the promise of the indwelling spirit, you are not alone. But here's one more thing that the gospel tells us, should tell you this morning, that in spiritual conflict, you are in command. And so you don't need to live in defeat or with withered arms and weak knees. Uh, feeling like you, you have no power over the temptation in front of you. Or even over the wilting destruction and decay that you see, or disease and pandemic that you see all around you. You don't need to wilt in defeat. You are in command. How? What does it look like to exercise authority over the forces of darkness? Uh, do you rebuke the devil? Well, maybe, sure, but notice something more in verse 11 and 17. 
that what this passage commends to us is, is a weapon of warfare that you might even call surprising. When talking about those who had sacrificed so much, even to the point of martyrdom, in verse 11 we're told this, and they have conquered him, the devil, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. In verse 17, the dragon went off to make war on the rest of the woman's offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Uh, first of all, notice that it says they have conquered him. Not Christ has conquered them, but in Christ they have. You have. There it is. You have authority. But notice secondly, that what is it that exercised this conquering authority in Christ? See, we expect it to be some big weapon that we pull out from behind us, like in a Marvel movie. Uh, we expect it to be something otherworldly, something unexpected. Well, it is unexpected. What was it that conquered the enemy? Dying people who stood secure on the blood of the Lamb, holding fast to the gospel. People whose testimony, whose personal story is that of ordinary obedience, ordinary steadfast faithfulness and sacrifice. Those who would love Christ so much that even the destruction of this world and of the devil would not loosen their grip of faith upon Christ and his word. They loved not their lives even unto death. I mean, friends, can you understand every little act of obedience to God's word? Every moment of faith, believing even when it's hard and even impossible. Every work of self-denial, putting other people first in love. Your friends, your roommates, your spouses, your children, your neighbors, even your enemies, those that are hardest to love, to put them first, these acts of self-denial. Every one of these seemingly mundane, ordinary things is a declaration of war on the kingdom of darkness, despair, and of death. Resist the devil and he will flee from you, says James. And here John tells us, cling to the blood of Christ. Stand on the authority of his word. Obey Christ. Follow him in paths of righteousness and sacrificial love. Because there's nothing that makes Satan tremble more than a little person that dares to love even at great cost to themselves. Because it's in that act of humility and self-denial that we see the power and the glory of Christ emerge most strongly. 
Oh, friends, you have authority in this fight, and don't you ever forget whatever else he is, the devil is always an enemy in retreat. This brings us to our final point, that Christ's full and final victory is coming. Why is the devil so mad? You heard it earlier, verse 12. Because he knows that his time is short. He knows better than we do, it seems, that his counterfeit reign, his occupation of evil, has an expiration date. It's coming to an end. It does not last forever. And so we can praise along with those words in verse 10. Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. It's already come. It's advented. The beginning of Christ's victory, the beginning of his defeat of the enemy has begun. And yet we long for the second advent, even as we look out and peer out, even over the last week, evidences of violence and death and destruction and conflict in the church and in our nation around the world, decay and continuing disease and darkness and despair and depression. All these things that we see in front of us, evidences of the continuing false tyranny of the devil. And yet we look forward onto the horizon of hope, where we can peer over with faith to the, to the edge of history, and we can notice a glimmer of light that's breaking in. A light that invites us to confess together with Romans 16, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. The Advent hope that fills our hearts with the coming promise of the King who will return one day, someday, soon. And teaches us to say, even with tearful rejoicing, Beloved, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Let's pray. Jesus, is it true? Can it be true? Will it be true that one day soon you will wipe every tear from our eyes, that you will subdue all of your enemies, that righteousness will reign, that the light will fully overcome the darkness, that disease and death will be no more, but only eternal life and Christ will reign on his throne visibly and the enemy will be no more. Will it be so? And by faith we say yes and amen. It will be so. And come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come, Lord Jesus, come. In Christ's name, amen.